You are listening to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast with Monica Louie, episode number 88. Welcome to the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast, where we help online entrepreneurs grow their influence, amplify their impact, and scale their businesses all the way to seven figures. And now, here's your host, Monica Louie. Hey, hey, thank you so much for joining me for the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. I'm your host, Monica Louie. I'm a Facebook and Instagram ads strategist. And my team, we call ourselves Team Flourish. We are a fast growing agency that works with six, seven, and eight figure online businesses and help them scale and flourish with Facebook and Instagram ads. I'm also the creator of Flourish with Facebook ads, which is my online training program to teach you how to create your own high converting campaigns yourself if you're not quite ready to outsource. You can check that out at monicalouie.com slash flourish if you are interested. But today we are talking about YouTube. My incredible guest is Erica Kohlberg. She is an attorney and a personal finance expert. She's got an amazing debt payoff story. You're not even going to believe it, but she's sharing her debt payoff story here today. She's also sharing her expertise as an attorney, and we're talking about the important documents and policies that you need to have in place as an online business owner. I believe I feel like this is something that people often overlook. They're just so excited to get their businesses off the ground and creating content and growing their audience and driving traffic that we often overlook the importance of these details. So We are talking about those things with Erica today. Plus, we are diving deep into the world of YouTube, and she is going to tell us exactly how she has grown her brand new channel so quickly and her struggles and challenges that she had to overcome along the way and what she's learned that really resonates with her audience and helps to get those shares, helps to be found in the search engine on YouTube. And she's breaking it all down for us today. I just love how much she shared in this interview, so I cannot wait for you to hear it. But before we dive in, I want to make sure that you know that you can find all the links and resources that Erica and I mentioned today in this episode at monicalouie.com slash 88. Erica is such a gem. I just cannot wait to share this interview with you. So let's get right into it. Here is my interview with Erica Kohlberg from ericakohlberg.com. And of course, her hit up and coming, fast growing channel on YouTube called Erica Kohlberg as well. Hey, Erica, thank you so much for joining me on the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. I am so excited about our conversation today. I can't wait to dive into your story and all the amazing things that you're up to. Thank you for having me, Monica. I'm so excited as well. So please, before we dive in, please tell everybody what you are up to today. What are you doing in the world right now? Sure. So it's nice to meet everyone. I'm Erica Kohlberg. I am a lawyer. I'm the founder of a legal tech startup. And I also have a personal finance YouTube channel. So I really wear those two hats right now. And you're doing amazing things on YouTube. You've grown your channel really fast. So I definitely want to get into that. And you're not just growing it with a lot of views and subscribers, but you're also making good money from it already. So I definitely want to get into that. But first, can you start off by sharing a little bit about your story and how you decided to end up as a lawyer and start an online business with a YouTube channel? I want to know, you know, where did you start and how did you get here? 
Sure. So I followed a very traditional path. I went to law school and then I went to a law firm. I worked as a corporate lawyer in the mergers and acquisitions division. And essentially after I went to law school and went to this law firm because I had so many student loans to pay off, I had over $200,000 of student loans. But towards my end of the time at the law firm, I started to realize that I wanted a different path for myself. So the traditional path would have been to stay at the law firm for several years, become a partner, and then just be a partner at the law firm and kind of cruise, but also never have this work-life balance or this passion that I felt when I was doing my own projects. So a few years in, I decided that I was ready to leave. So that happened last year. I left the law firm to start my legal technology company. And then at the same time, I started my YouTube channel. And I was just fascinated with the concept of creating passive income and putting a lot of work up front so that eventually you could decrease the amount of work you do, but still have that passive income flowing in. And so that's been my mission for the past year is to really work on building my online presence, my online brand, as well as the legal company. Did you always see yourself as a budding entrepreneur or did you have any role models in your life that kind of showed you the way, or was it just something that you just decided that you were going to you know, venture down this path? I discovered entrepreneurship. I didn't know what the word meant probably until my second year of law school. And my third year of law school, I had a pretty successful startup with one of my colleagues from law school. And that went really well and introduced me to this amazingness of creating something by finding a problem in the world and trying to create a solution for it. And so that's how I discovered entrepreneurship and my passion for it. And unfortunately, I was just burdened with the student loan debt. So I had to take on this law firm job. But it was always in the back of my head that if I could pay off the student loans and not have those hovering over me, I'd love to go back into this world of entrepreneurship and pursue something on my own. And you did, right? I see that you paid off your student loans. Is that correct? Yeah, I paid them off. And yeah, left the law firm last year to, to start everything. So... So how long did it take you to pay off over $200,000 of student loans? I did it in under two years, which I realize is not common for most, but I was really, I was really all about saving and remaining frugal. And so throughout the law firm experience, I never let myself think that I wasn't still a broke student. So I lived my life in a very frugal way so that I could put most of my income towards the student loans. That is awesome. Congratulations. That's huge. And something that probably maybe many of your colleagues weren't really focused on, I would imagine that were you kind of the odd duck or was everybody else kind of like, we need to figure out how we're going to, you know, dig our way out of student loans? I think I was probably the odd duck. I don't think, I think most people, when they get a job, the natural inclination is to increase your lifestyle. So you start buying the nicer cars and the nicer things. And that was just never my motivation. My motivation was just to get debt free. So that was, I was hyper-focused on that. And so your YouTube channel is about personal finance and, but you've got this legal tech business. And so you're still like straddling both worlds. So how did that come about? Did you I mean, it was that intentional or that, that you're just passionate about talking about personal finance. And so you wanted to talk about that in the YouTube channel, or is that like your project to figure out passive income? How did you decide to start both? Cause did you start both at the same time or did you start one and then the other? 
That's a good question. So I left the law firm to create the legal tech company. And when I left the law firm, YouTube was never part of the plan. It wasn't like I quit, I quit the law firm to start a YouTube channel, which would have been ambitious. But I I quit to start the legal tech company because I saw a lot of inefficiencies in the in the legal world. And particularly what bothered me was I found that for these at these top law firms, we're charging clients about $1,000 an hour. And the reality is the only people that, that can afford those ridiculous rates are Fortune 500 CEOs. And I really wanted to make the law accessible for small business owners, entrepreneurs, content creators, and provide that same top quality that you'd receive by hiring a big law firm to small business owners at a more affordable rate. So that's really my passion. And that's why I left the law firm to create plug-in law. And once I left and once I started working on this concept for plug-in law, that's when I thought about creating something that was unrelated to the law. Because to be honest, at the law firm, I was starting to feel a bit burnt out. And I think it's important to have other creative outlets besides just whatever your profession is. And for me, something that I was passionate about, and I would define passion as like something that I could talk about for hours and hours and hours, years and years without ever having any monetary compensation from it was personal finance. And it's because I've always been interested in it, but learning about personal finance really allowed me to pay off the student loans and gave me this freedom and flexibility to leave this traditional job to pursue my own ventures. So I was really interested in personal finance and I decided to start this YouTube channel to share my passion and try to help others to learn about personal finance and control their finances. I love it so much. Okay. So can you tell me what you mean by legal tech company and helping small business owners? What exactly do you do with plug-in law? Sure. So with plug-in law, we have two main things right now. So one is the legal bundle, and this has the documents that are necessary for online business owners, creators, entrepreneurs to legally protect their business without hiring an expensive lawyer. So the most popular one that you'll hear of that's in the bundle is the privacy policy. So if you have a website, you might know you have to have this privacy policy in place. It's required by law. If you're doing anything like collecting emails, or even if you have Google analytics on your site. And so what we do is offer these templates that are really easy for you to just download and it takes just a few minutes to fill in and customize for yourself. We provide step-by-step instructions for you and then you get it onto your website and you feel that peace of mind that you have the proper legal protections in place. And it's really important for people to realize because a lot of times the legal stuff is put on the back burner. It's not the most glamorous thing when you have all these other things to juggle as an entrepreneur, but it's so important because it's one of those things where you don't want to learn after the fact, after it's too late and you've gotten into some legal trouble. So you really want to have those documents in place as a preventative measure. And then the other thing that we offer right now is, is a trademark bundle. And that helps you register your trademark in the U.S. Okay. Very cool. So 
that is something, you know, as you mentioned, I think that as people get so excited about starting their online business and I'm going to launch my blog, I'm going to, you know, go for it. I'm going to create my website. They get excited about the logo, you know, writing the about page that the privacy policy and all the legal side of it is something that I think there's not a lot of information out there of what is actually needed and how to go about it. And also usually, at least I can speak for myself, when starting out, you probably don't have a lot of money to invest in your business. And so you don't know if you need to go hire an expensive lawyer or you can kind of just risk it. And then once your business is making money, then kind of get those legal things in place. So what are really like the pitfalls of if somebody doesn't, you know, they're starting out their business and they end up not taking these precautions of figuring out the privacy policy and the other things that are in this bundle and getting those established up front. Yeah. So the really the worst case scenario is you could get sued. And I I say this not to scare people because that's never my intention, but I do have people come to me, bloggers who never thought they could get sued. And they come to me saying like, Hey, I'm in trouble. I'm in legal trouble. What can you do to help? And I say, well, did you have these documents in place? Did you have them on your website? And they say, no, like, I didn't know these were important. I, I'm just a small business owner. I didn't think I would need it. And so that's really the worst case scenario is not having these protections in place and then finding out the hard way that you needed them. And the problem is most people, it's really about education. My goal is to educate people that these are necessary because like you said, most people don't realize most people think, oh, you know, I'm too small. It won't happen to me. Or, you know, these are too expensive. Let me wait until after my first year of business when I have some revenue. So that's really the biggest pitfall is getting into these legal disputes and just not realizing you need them. And then also I see people try to take free ones online, which is never a good idea. Those aren't drafted by lawyers. So there are quite a few pitfalls that you just want to try to avoid. So you've got to make sure that you've got the actual templates and that you got them customized for your situation. And so going through these templates can help you achieve that. So you can know that you're protected because I, I've seen people too, where they'll just go to somebody else's privacy policy and be like, well, that's got to be good enough for them. But unless you're going through the process yourself, I imagine that you may be missing some things that maybe they don't have in their privacy policy that you should have in yours. Is I mean, would you say mm-hmm. that that might be true? Exactly. You've got it right. And then also I see people just copying, pasting other privacy policies, but that's copyright infringement. So we have to be careful that we're not doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Good point. So definitely got to make sure that you're protecting your business because even though we might feel like, you know, well, I'm small, I'm just starting out. I'm not making money yet. So I'm not like a real quote unquote business. One day the goal is, if you're listening to this podcast, the goal is to get there. And so you don't want to be looking back, wishing that you had done something that you could have easily taken care of. And then with the trademark, so with the trademark bundle, when should we be getting a trademark? Because this is something that I hear people are like launching programs. I'm going to, you know, trademark my signature program. When, when should we be getting a trademark and when are we okay to kind of wait, I guess, on the trademark or or are we ever okay to wait on the trademark? Yeah. So that's a difficult one to answer because it it just varies based on your personal situation. It's really a personal and business decision. But the one thing I will say that most people don't realize about registering for a federal trademark is it's first to file, meaning that whoever files first if they if the trademark registers they get it so even if you were in business 
prior to another person, if they come and they file first with the USPTO, they could get all of the federal rights to that trademark. So that's the only thing you want to watch out for is if you're thinking about your brand, if this is something that you're thinking about for the long term and you really think you can grow this brand and this brand is going to be worth a lot of money. And for example, I think the McDonald's logo is worth about $130 billion in brand value. <laughs> and so we're, we're obviously not at that stage. But if you think that your brand is valuable, it is important to consider whether registering for a federal trademark is right for you. And just keep in mind that it is first to file. So what are the things that we can trademark? You mentioned logo. I'm assuming like brand name. Is there anything else that we should be kind of considering as we're considering getting a trademark? Yep. You can, you can trademark words, logos, phrases, designs. Okay. And so then what if, let's say we are holding off on getting the trademark, we feel like, you know, we're not big enough yet, or we're just, you know, not, that's another project to add on the to-do list. And then somebody does go ahead and they are first to file with our brand name or, you know, a similar logo or something to that effect. Is that then, are we putting ourselves at risk for trademark infringement because they then, you know, went through the proper channels and got it filed? Or what is like, are there any kind of legal things that we should be looking out for that? In that situation? Mm -hmm. So that does, that does happen. I mean, the worst case scenario is they register for a federal trademark and then they come after you and say that, you know, you're infringing on their trademark. So you might get a cease and desist letter. And so that is terrifying because even if you were using it before them, they've now registered the federal trademark, they could do that. And so that's really the worst case scenario as a business owner, probably. Okay. So if, I mean, if you're committed to your brand or your logo design, then you should be considering this process so that you don't end up. I've heard horror stories of people who who started a business, didn't realize that they were violating a trademark and then were then later served with that cease and desist letter and had to change their entire brand, which just does not sound fun. So, okay. So- (laughs) Yeah, especially because the I have seen the rebranding thing as well, where they have to rebrand their entire everything, the social media, everything. And we invest so much time and money building our brands that it's unfortunate when that happens and when people don't realize that trademarks are so important and those worst case scenarios do play out and they have to rebrand everything because it's a lot of time and money that you've invested into your brand. So I think it's important to legally protect it if you think that's the right path for you. Absolutely. Okay. So now, now that we've gotten a little bit of legal advice, thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we need a disclaimer. So I want to talk about YouTube because you've really been rocking it on YouTube. You have grown to over 70,000 subscribers with 4 million views in under a year and growing so fast that by the time this comes out, you're going to be way beyond that. When did exactly did you start the YouTube channel and how did you grow it so fast? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I started the YouTube channel. I posted my very first video, what was it? October 30th of 2019. So right around a year ago. And I really didn't have any intention for this to become a big thing. I was just curious about how YouTube works. And I set this goal for myself to create one video per week for a year, no matter what, even if I only got one view. And obviously things went well, shockingly, and and it has grown to a fairly decent sized channel in this past year. So I'm really grateful for that. 
Well, congratulations. I'm curious, did you like test out any other avenues? Like, did you consider podcasting or blogging or any other mediums like that? Or were you just pretty sure that you wanted to, you know, start producing videos? So I considered, I was back and forth between blogging and YouTube and blogging for me would have been much more comfortable in the natural route. I do a lot of writing in my legal practice, so it would have just been the comfortable route. But something about YouTube, I was so fascinated by it that you can really build a connection with people by being on video and them feeling like you're in their apartment talking to them about finance. And then also, I felt like there was a bigger barrier to entry for YouTube because it is not as comfortable as writing on your blog, for for instance. So I thought that maybe because of that, there would be less competition and greater potential for my message to get out there. Okay. So that's a huge, a huge thing for me, especially, I mean, I have this podcast and it was, you know, a lot of work to get it going and it's a lot of work to maintain, you know, consistency with releasing episodes every week, but YouTube does seem like a bigger hurdle. And I actually have YouTube experience. I did it with my first, my first brand actually in the personal finance space, sharing our every story and kind of giving budgeting tips and things like that. And so I haven't gone the YouTube route with this brand yet, although I see that, you know, there is that potential if I want to help, you know, people, I need to meet them where they are. And while a lot of people are listening to podcasts, a lot of people are watching YouTube videos. So I feel like that's kind of, you know, a future, a future venture for me. So what would you say to somebody who's considering YouTube, but they do feel like there might be a lot of, you know, a lot involved in doing the setup and the recording and the consistency and all of that. What would you say to somebody who's kind of nervous about all of that? Yeah, I think for YouTube, my motto is to treat it like, or or, (laughs) I messed it up. It's to love it like a hobby, treat it like a business. So you do have to really be passionate about creating these videos or sharing your message, but you have to treat it like a business. And with treating it like a business, it means putting efficient systems in place. And obviously no one, I don't think many people like the editing process. I don't think many people like, you know, the recording process. So it's all about how you can streamline those things that you don't necessarily like about YouTube so that you can get those done in a shorter amount of time and stay consistent with it. So whether it's posting one video a week or two videos a week, you really need to develop a system so that you will be able to sustain that for the long term because YouTube is is not about immediate results. It's very rare that you can just blow up on YouTube quickly. Most of the case, most of the time, it just takes months and months of consistency and showing up to YouTube to be successful on it. So really think about, you know, if if you don't like talking on camera, maybe think about getting a teleprompter and just scripting out your videos and using the teleprompter to to deliver that video message. Or if you don't like editing, think about outsourcing the editing component. Okay. Those are, those are good tips. So with your process, what is your setup like? Can you, can you share like some of the tools that you use? Are you using a fancy camera? Are you using like your, your smartphone? What it maybe, you know, how has that changed maybe over, over the past year or so? Can you share some, some tips there? Sure. So I bought a used camera to start on YouTube and I also have a lav mic that I think was maybe $70. 
And then I also have lights. So those are really my, that's my setup. It's, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't terribly expensive. I think if you're just starting out, an iPhone is completely fine. There are YouTubers out there with millions of subscribers that are still recording on their phone. So you really don't have to think of it as a barrier. You don't have to think that you have to invest in so much equipment. There are cheap lights that you can get on Amazon for $50. There are cheap mics that you can get for $20. So you really don't have to invest much up front unless you know that this is something that you're going to commit to for multiple years. And for me, I justified the camera purchase because I thought I'm doing this for at least a year. I'd rather purchase it up front and benefit from the whole year of these good videos than to buy the camera a year from now. But for most people, I would highly recommend just using what you have to record. Okay. Can you share? A, this is the advice that I wish I had years ago. Why, why is lighting important? <laughs> it might seem <laughs> obvious to some. I, I laugh now because I understand it. But Monica from a couple of years ago didn't understand until she got a good light <laughs> how important it is. So can you just kind of explain? I think the lighting, I'm I'm no tech expert either. I have no idea about any of this, but I think the lighting is just important because it makes the video look better. So you can tell a big difference when you're not using lights versus when you're using lights. And I think it's lighting is actually probably the cheapest investment you can make to get a big return on your money and have a big difference in how the videos look. So even ring lights, or if you're recording up close, a ring light is fine. Or for me, I'm recording a little further back. So these, I don't even know what they're called, but lights I found on Amazon. <laughs> lighting is just, lighting is just a cheap way to level up your recording setup. Okay. Thank you for that. Because when uh, it was a couple of years ago and I do a lot of meetings on the computer, a lot of, you know, zoom calls, Skype calls, and sometimes video interviews. And when I got a decent camera for my desktop and then got some good lighting behind my, my computer, I got so many compliments about my, you know, that I looked so much better on camera. And so then I realized, oh, wow, it does make a big difference. I wish that somebody (laughs) had told me this earlier. So anyway, so that's why I wanted to talk to touch on that. Yeah, no, it's funny. I think the most, probably the most important thing is the lighting. Second most important thing is audio, the mic, and you can get a cheap one for $20. And least important is your camera. And cameras are the most oh, interesting. So that's interesting. how it works. Okay. Well, that is very helpful. Okay. So then with, when you're planning out your videos, are you writing a script? Are you writing an outline? I'm one of those where I feel like, I kind of want to have everything written out that, you know, the, what I'm going to say and the way that I'm going to say it. And this is another hurdle for me too, in kind of just going with, with video. So what are you, what are you doing? What does your planning process look like for your videos? So I've done both. I've worked for, I, early on, I just did bullet points. So I would just basically outline what I wanted to talk about. And now I actually script essentially word for word. And I feel like that helps me to provide more value in my videos because I'm not going off on tangents. I'm really focused on what every single word means and why it's intentionally placed there so that it saves time for the viewer. I can get straight to the point. So, and it's also easier for me. I feel less anxiety when I have every word scripted in front of me. And so then are you also using a teleprompter? I am. Yeah. Okay. So any advice on finding a good teleprompter? I always feel like I've tried a couple of teleprompter apps and I feel like I'm still looking down. 
So any advice there? Yeah, there's a free or I'm sorry, it's not free. Actually, there is a $20 app. I'm not an affiliate or anything. I actually just genuinely recommend it. It's called Prompt Smart Pro. I think it's a one-time $20 fee, but what it actually does is you reflect it on your teleprompter and it listens to your voice. So as you're speaking, it can tell where you are in the script and it moves it automatically for you. That is cool because I have, as I said, I tested a teleprompter app and I had to speed it up and then I had to slow it down and then it wasn't quite right still. And, and so, okay. So very cool. Thank you for that recommendation. I imagine, and this is just me with my, you know, my limited knowledge of YouTube and what I've hear I've heard from other YouTubers that you've got to, that the, the length that people are watching, like the retention rate of people watching your videos is important. And so is that true? And then if so, what would you say is your recommendation for, you know, how do you keep the engagement up, the viewership up? How do you get people to click to watch your videos, like with the thumbnail and the headline? I'm, I'm curious about all those little things and, and how you kind of strategize that if you do. What is your thought process in putting those things together? Yeah. So YouTube rewards you for providing value. It's very simple, right? So if you're in the entertainment space, then how much can you entertain people? How much can you keep their attention? If you're in the education space like me, how much value can you provide? How much can you get someone to say, wow, this is really valuable. And I think one of those ways is to not go off on tangents and make sure that every every second of your video is really there for a purpose and is really providing value. That means things like don't have an intro in your YouTube video. I know a lot of people when they started a YouTube channel, they love to get these intros produced that are like 15 seconds, but really the viewer does not benefit from intros. So cut that out and really think about how can you make every second of their viewing time worth it to them. And then in terms of attracting viewers to watch your videos, that's where things like the thumbnail and the title of the video are really important. So for the thumbnail, you really want to either describe exactly what your video is, exactly what they can expect, or have an element of curiosity in there. So for finance, it's really important to have numbers in there, like a thousand dollars, a million dollars, something that might get someone to click like, wow, that's... how how is she going to make that kind of money? I want to click and find out. And so that's one of my popular videos I have out there called how I'm going to build $200,000 of passive income this year. And I think the thumbnail is just like $200,000 in the thumbnail. And the title, title is the same thing. You don't want to clickbait. You never want to have a title that is not accurately describing what's in your video. But there should also be an element of curiosity and an element of, wow, I want to try to see what that video is about. So those are really my tips for thumbnail and title. Okay. So that's that's really good. And so when you when people, like you get the click and people are watching, how do you like plan out the hook and then keeping them watching for the entire video? Is it important that they watch all the way through? So if you could share about like, what is your hook strategy and then anything else in the middle as far as like delivering the value. And then I know you, you've always got a call to action at the end. So if you can kind of touch on those three things. Sure. So starting off the video in the first five seconds, I say what the video is going to be about. And then I do a quick hello, I'm Erica Kohlberg and a little social proofs. I say, I'm a lawyer and I talk about personal finance and then I dive straight into the video. So I say diving right in and then we get started in the video. And then at the end, there is a call to action. So 
you can either direct them to a free download that you have in the description or direct them to an affiliate link that you have in, in the description. Or what I usually like to do is direct them to the next video. So what is the next video that makes sense for them based on what they're currently watching? Very cool. I'm taking notes like crazy. <laughs> okay. So then in the description, so I know that there's to help with ranking YouTube SEO and correct me if I'm wrong, but YouTube SEO is kind of important so that people can find your videos. So as you're, are you thinking about that as you're writing the description and thinking about the title? What is your process for determining that? Like, are you using a special tool to help you figure out what kind of angle you can rank for? Are you just creating, you know, what sounds good, what you're, you know, excited to talk about? What is your process with that? Okay. So the best way to really think about what topics you want to make are to figure out what your audience is searching for. And so there are tools out there like TubeBuddy, vidIQ that help you with keyword planning. And what it'll allow you to do is it lets you figure out what people are searching for, what specific keywords. And when you're a smaller channel, you don't want to target very broad keywords like investing because there's so much competition for that already. And the bigger channels have already dominated the rankings on that. So what you're looking for is much more tailored long tail keywords. So investing for beginners 2021 might be easier to rank for than investing. And so you should really be planning your videos around that and those more specific keywords Once when you're smaller. When you get bigger, you can start targeting maybe those more generic keywords. But when you're smaller, you want to figure out what are people searching for that's very specific. And so about half my videos are planned using that strategy, just figuring out what people are searching for. And then the other half of my videos are my trendy attempts. So these are videos where it's not necessarily what people are searching for, but it might have more potential to go viral. So for example, I did a video on how much YouTube paid me for 1 million views. That's not something people search for necessarily. I don't think that many people are saying searching how many, how much do people get paid for 1 million views, but that's something where there's more potential for this trendiness aspect where people are going to see the thumbnail and be like, that's interesting. I wonder how much, how much they paid her for a million views and click on it. So I always have a balance on my channel of these trendy attempts and then these very search-based attempts. That's great. And I, I saw that video and it's, I mean, that is the, the curiosity provoking, right? So the, you know, you see the thumbnail, you see the title and you're like, well, I mean, whether I'm going to do YouTube or not, I am curious, you know, (laughs) you always want to find out the behind the scenes of, you know, what do the numbers really look like? Okay. Very cool. So you mentioned a lot of people don't like the editing part. And to be honest, I feel like even though I used to edit my own YouTube videos back in the day, I feel like that's not something that I really want to spend my time doing. And so do you edit your own videos? Did you find an editor? What is your recommendation there? I think if you can afford to hire an editor, it will streamline the process. So for me, I always thought of YouTube as an investment. So I hired editors from the very beginning just because I simply would not have time for YouTube if I did every single part of YouTube myself because my full-time job is plug-in law. And so I hired from the beginning and there are plenty of sites out there where you can find editors, Fiverr, freelance websites. So if that is within your budget, I 
think it will help you with the process to hire an editor. But it's also important to learn how to edit so that you can actually know how to direct your editor. So even though I did hire from the beginning, I still taught myself how to use Adobe Premiere Pro. So I probably spent 60 or 100 hours learning from various YouTube videos how to edit on my own because that's that's going to allow you to streamline your process because you will know how to direct your editor. Or if if you can't afford an editor at the beginning, figure out how you can make your edits as simple as possible. So don't worry about all of the graphics. Just figure out how you can make that edits simple. And the best technique I have for doing that is to script out your videos. Because if you script out your videos, then you really know what to say. And every time you make a mistake, just clap or sorry, every time you get something right, just clap. And then you'll see that audio wave. And then you can just quickly edit it. It should only take like 10, 15 minutes to edit if you're using that technique. Ooh, that is, that is a really good tip. Okay. So do you ever, as you're like figuring out what to do videos on, are you ever looking at, you know, your quote unquote competitors in the space of, you know, what is working well for them? What's kind of trending for them? What's getting, you know, getting some good engagement, lots of views, maybe, you know, are you ever looking at what your competitors are doing or are you just mostly focused on your direction and, and what you want to be producing? And then also what your audience is asking for. It has to be a combination. I think you, it's important to be aware of what your, I like to call them colleagues because I really think of us as all colleagues, but it, it's important to be aware of what your colleagues are doing and what's successful for them, what's trending in your niche. So when I got my first viral video, it was because I was following 70 other creators in the personal finance space and I was seeing what was working for them. And there was at that time a lot of search traffic towards stimulus content. So the CARES Act had just been passed March and a lot of people were confused about how to get their stimulus check if they were qualified. So I saw other creators in my space being successful by breaking down the stimulus check. So that was a video I made and that was my first viral video. So it is important to be aware of what everyone's doing. That's very cool. And then of course, with your legal background too, then you kind of have, you know, maybe an upper hand and being able to explain it. I think so. I think so. I spent hours and hours and hours reading these bills so that I could break them down in a very simple to understand way. I love it. Okay. So we've got the process, you know, down from, from your tips and you get going, you, you create your videos. What's the difference between somebody like you where your channel takes off and, you know, you get millions of views within a year and then somebody who's like cranking out content and doesn't, you know, it doesn't ever quite take off to that, to that level. So what, what would you say are like the biggest differences between what is working for you and then what you see other people kind of where it's, it's not really hitting it? Well, so I think YouTube is really about consistency. So I don't think there's anything special about me that allowed me to be successful this first year. I think it's a lot of it, to be honest, is luck driven. I mean, I think it is about understanding the algorithm and knowing what people want to see, but it's also luck. I mean, it's not like I told YouTube, Hey, this video needs to go viral. Let's make it happen. (laughs) So um, it's, it's about consistency. So time that you're putting into YouTube and then luck. And I think 
the thing that you have control over for YouTube is the consistency. So really just focus on that. I know so many people get discouraged that they're not seeing results or so many people compare themselves with other people on YouTube who are seeing results and and question like, why am I not seeing results? But really it's about patience and sticking with it, learning how to improve your video. So study your analytics and figure out, is there a certain time in your video where a lot of people are dropping off? So where they're clicking off of your video. Well, if that's the case, that's probably where they're getting bored. So figure out how to keep their attention longer. Or, you know, if, if YouTube starts promoting one of your videos on a certain topic, that's your indication that, wow, I need to make more videos on this specific topic. So double down on that specific topic. And so it's really about being able to pivot studying your analytics, learning what's working, what's not, and then just staying consistent and trying not to compare yourself with other people. Because there's, like I said, I really don't think there's anything special about me. Like I'm not good on camera naturally. I'm not like particularly funny. I don't have this YouTube personality, but I just stuck with it. And I was willing to just put the hours in week after week. I think I put 440 hours into my YouTube channel before I got my first viral video. And so that consistency will pay off for everyone. And I truly believe that. But most people will quit before they see success on YouTube because they get discouraged. That's a great point. I think that success with most things is a result of perseverance and consistency. And so I really am glad that you that you share that with us. So with growing, I know you've got some you've got some tips as far as like how to grow your YouTube channel. So is it just about consistency or are there other things that we can potentially do that could help? I think the most important thing is the consistency. I I just can't stress that enough because I think a lot of people have this impression that YouTube is a get rich quick scheme or like you can get rich quickly. And I think that actually is a disservice to YouTube creators to make it seem like that because then when people aren't getting results right away, they get discouraged. And so my goal is to educate people that, look, I have some success now in my first year, but the first six months, I didn't have any Mm. success really. I was pouring hours and hours of my time and my heart into these videos and probably just getting a few views. So it's important to just tune out the idea that YouTube is a get rich quick mechanism. And then Yeah, not to be repetitive, but I think it's just also important to study what's working for you and and be willing to pivot. So don't just be so set on your ways. I think I was really set on my ways of not doing trendy topics. I only wanted to do evergreen topics that could actually bring me passive income because that is my big goal is to create passive income. But I saw that this trendy topic, the stimulus topic was really working for other people. And so I decided to pivot a little. And because I was able to make that pivot, that's one of the big reasons why my channel was able to grow very quickly. So just be willing to pivot and learn from others and learn from your own analytics. Very cool. Okay. So let's talk about making money because you do talk about making money from your YouTube channel on your YouTube channel. So how are you monetizing your YouTube channel. And as you said, multiple times, it's not a get rich quick scheme. So I'm guessing that most of the monetization didn't occur early on. So how are you monetizing and how have you focused on growing that? Yeah. So I am monetizing on YouTube right now through three main avenues. The first is 
ad revenue. So when you watch a YouTube video, you see an ad at the beginning, sometimes middle, sometimes end. And so that's ad revenue. And for that, you have to qualify for the YouTube partner program, which means you have to have a minimum of 1000 subscribers and a minimum of 4,000 hours of watch time. And once you meet those criteria, then you can apply for the YouTube partner program. And what happens is the advertisers will pay YouTube to put ads on your channel and YouTube will take 45% of that and give you 55% of that. So that's one primary avenue. The second one is through affiliate marketing. So affiliate marketing is where there's a service or product that I love from another company. And so if I promote that using a special trackable link, traceable link called an affiliate link, then I might make a small commission for every time someone clicks on that link and takes some sort of action. And then the third one is sponsorships. So this is where brands pay me to mention their products or services in my actual YouTube video. And so those are the three main avenues that I'm making money from on YouTube. Very cool. So which one is bringing in the most for you and has this changed over time? Yeah. So from the beginning, something that's interesting that I've learned is that most people think YouTube ad revenue is the biggest way to make money on YouTube. And it's actually, for me, it's been a far cry from that. So my first year of YouTube, I think I said on the channel, I made over a hundred thousand dollars. And of that less than a third came from ad revenue and the rest came from affiliates and sponsorships. So I think it's important to realize that you can make money on YouTube before you even meet that qualification to be part of the YouTube mm. partner program. And for me, my first dollar off of YouTube was from affiliate links. And that was before I even was able to run ads on my channel. And then sponsorships obviously become lucrative as you get larger. And can you you can approach these sponsors and say, hey, I have this audience. Are you interested in sponsoring a video on my YouTube channel? And so the vast majority of what I'm making on YouTube comes from affiliates and sponsors. Very cool. Okay. So when it comes to affiliate marketing, are you sharing your affiliate link? Like, are you actually stating your affiliate link? Are you directing them to the link in the description? Are you adding... I remember when I would create my my videos back in the day, I would add a card so they could, you know easily click on it. What kind of, how are you kind of promoting the affiliate link in the video? So if it's a natural integration, I'll mention it in the video somewhere. If I'm talking about a specific app and I have an affiliate link to that app, I'll mention it in the video. Sometimes I'll mention that I have an affiliate link for some particular company at the end of the video. And then you're just putting it in your description or your pinned comment so that people can see it and click on it if they're interested. Are you doing any of those other like cards to call like as a call to action or do you think that those are distracting or what are your thoughts there? I personally don't find much value from those. So I'm not doing that. Okay. Curious. Okay. Um, And then with (laughs) sponsorships, how did you get started with sponsorships? You said that you approach brands. Did they, did anybody approach you first or did you do outreach? How did you get that started? I think now a lot of brands approach me. I think this year so far, I've turned down more than 20 sponsorship requests. 
But for the most part, this is the thing people don't realize is if you don't ask, you don't get. So for the brands that I am working with, it's because I truly love them and love their products or services. So I am reaching out to them. Hello, I'm Erica Kohlberg. I have a YouTube channel. Are you interested in sponsoring any videos like that? I love it. Okay. So, so you're not shy about it. You're like, Hey, maybe we can work something out here. And then with your, I mean, legal background, how do you negotiate those kind of contracts? How do you decide what exactly, you know, you're going to provide and then any tips for, you know, kind of improving the deal or, you know, I would guess that you're going to say maybe don't accept the first offer or should we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, My biggest tip, I say as a default, always ask for 30% more than you actually want. And the reason I say this is because people like to negotiate, brands like to negotiate. And by asking for 30% more than you actually want to begin with, chances are if you, by the time the negotiations are over, you'll still end up with more than you actually wanted, but the company will feel like they've won because they're like, oh, I got her to negotiate down from her price. But in, in actuality, you've actually won because you asked for more than you wanted before. <laughs> so that's one of my biggest recommendations. And then be willing to walk away from deals that just simply aren't what you think they should be. So if if someone offers me a sponsorship deal that's just too low and there doesn't seem to be a way to negotiate it, I have no problem walking away because a lot of times companies will try to undervalue your channel. And by accepting those, you're really hurting yourself in the long term. So I I think it's a combination of knowing what your bottom line is and being able to walk away if you can't get that, get that number. I love that. I think that as people are starting out and maybe people are reaching out, because I I mean, people will reach out to me on Instagram about random sponsorships or something like that. And and it always feels like you know, how do I know this isn't, this is on the up and up or what are they really looking for? Or they'll email, you know? And so how do we know kind of, are there any telltale signs that something's, you know, there's a red flag or that something could actually be a good potential deal? Mm -hmm. So to be honest, Instagram, if they're reaching out on Instagram, it's usually not a good sign. I think I probably ignore most of my Instagram messages about sponsorships because a lot of times for Instagram, what they'll do is they just want to send you free product in exchange for a video, which isn't necessarily, it's not necessarily worth your time, right? To put all of this work into creating a video just for a free product that you could have just purchased on your own for cheaper than the time that you used to put into it. So what, one of the tips that I have that's probably pr- pretty practical is on your YouTube channel, it allows you to leave a business email. And I found a huge difference. I used to leave my just normal email on that business email place on YouTube, but I actually changed it to sponsorships at ericacolberg.com. And that created a shift because now I get much more serious requests to that email. And I think it's just that little mindset shift of putting it at sponsorships at ericacolberg.com makes people think like, oh, if I'm going to email her, it's about a sponsorship. Like I can't offer her free, free product. And so that's, that's something you can do, whether you're on Instagram, podcast, whatever platform you're on. 
I like it. Okay. This is really great, Erica. Thank you so much. So just a couple more quick questions before we wrap up. What are the common mistakes that you see people making other than like the not being consistent, um, maybe giving up too soon, but is there anything else that's kind of glaring like, Oh, you know, I really don't like it when people do this because they're, or they're damaging their, you know, their channel or something when they do this, what would you say? What comes to mind? First thing that comes to mind is just rambling on. So, so if a video can't get to the point, I'm always going to be someone who clicks off of the video. I'm not interested in spending 20 minutes watching a video that should have been five minutes. So I think really thinking about how can you not waste your viewers time is important. So if it's, if you're only delivering five minutes of content, don't create a 10 minute video just to try to get more watch time. That's doing a disservice to you and also your viewers is probably the big one is it's a, it's a quick switch. Like don't, don't ramble on. (laughs) Okay. So don't, don't be afraid to edit it down. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Great. For here we are at the end of 2020 going into 2021. I know the world is a little bit uncertain at this point, but where, where do you see YouTube going? What do you see the potential for YouTube? Have we, you know, missed the bus with YouTube if we're not on it yet? What are your thoughts with that? Oh, no, no one's missed the bus. I think that is one of the things that people are worried about when they're starting off on a new platform is everyone's going to say like, oh, it's already too saturated. Well, of course, people told me that for for YouTube too, but had I let that stop me, I wouldn't have been able to see out this potential growth. And so no, no platform is ever too saturated. You just have to come with your own perspective and be willing to showcase your personality and your unique angle because no one can do you better than you can. And you are unique. There's no one like you on YouTube. And so if you're considering YouTube, it's not too late, go on it. And where I think YouTube is really going is it is going to be the place for business owners to get very targeted leads. So the thing about YouTube to realize is it is the most easy to create funnel for your business because if people are searching for you know how to run facebook ads and you have a video on how to run facebook ads and in the video you mention like oh by the way if if you want I'm Monica. I'm actually a Facebook ads specialist and I have a free resource for you in the link below. Then you're getting lots of free targeted traffic. And so I think YouTube is very interesting for business owners. I know for my, for plug in law, I have a separate YouTube channel that I don't tell anyone about, but it's purely to drive traffic to plug in law. So I'm going after those search terms, like, you know, why do you need a privacy policy? How, like, why is a trademark important? And eventually what will happen is that YouTube channel, even though right now this YouTube channel has probably nine subscribers, it's going to probably make more money for me than my main Erica Colbert YouTube channel. And it's because it's a funnel for my business. I love it. Okay. You know, I love talking about funnels and strategy. Okay. Very, (laughs) very cool. And so you have a free resource for us, which I can't wait to dive into. Can you share about that? I do. So I created a free YouTube guide and I know we touched about it a bit, Monica, but it goes more into detail about monetizing your channel and just like the tips that I have for YouTube and how you can really grow a profitable YouTube channel in your first year. So that's a completely free resource. I think it's like a 10 page PDF, but hopefully it will be helpful for people. 
I love it because I mean, this is, this was my frustration when I had my channel before. It's like, I, I was being consistent with my videos, but I also felt like I was spinning my wheels and I didn't know what I didn't know. So I love that you've put this together for us and that you've answered so many detailed questions today. I really appreciate your time. So obviously you're on YouTube and tell people where they can go to check you out, to find your channel and where else people should go. Yeah. They can just find me at Erica Kohlberg on YouTube. And then I'm also at plug and law. Love it. Wonderful. Okay. Well, we will put all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Erica. I really appreciate your time and your openness and sharing your journey and gosh, all the details with us today really shared a wealth of knowledge with us. So thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. I appreciate you. All right. So if you want to go ahead and grab Erica's free guide, you can grab that at monicalouie.com slash YT guide. That's YT, of course, for YouTube. So monicalouie.com slash YT guide. You can grab her free guide. And if you know that you are ready to hit YouTube and master it this year, then go ahead and check out Erica's full-fledged YouTube mastery for the busy professional. It's her online course all about how you can master YouTube as well. You can find that at monicalouie.com slash mastering YouTube. That is my affiliate link. But once again, you'll have all the links and resources that we mentioned in today's episode at monicalouie.com slash 88. So thank you so much for joining Erica and me today. Go ahead and check out her YouTube channel. She's doing amazing things. Let her know, leave her a comment. Let her know that you heard her here on the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast and thank her for her time and sharing all of her wisdom and strategies with us. So many great helpful tips in this episode. And I want to thank you so much for joining me today. If you are ready to scale your business this year with Facebook and Instagram ads, then check out my free Facebook ad starter kit. It's my free guide that breaks down my six simple steps to creating campaigns that convert. Plus there's an awesome checklist and glossary. So you are not going to be lost when you dive into the ads manager to set up your next high converting campaign. You can grab that at monicalouie.com slash guide. And if you're ready to outsource your ads and you want to have a conversation about my team and I potentially taking over your Facebook, Instagram, or Pinterest ads off your plate and helping you scale and flourish to seven figures and beyond, go to monicalouie.com slash WWM. We have information there about our services. And just a reminder, we'll have all the links and resources that we mentioned in today's episode at monicalouie.com slash 88. This is the 88th episode of the Flourish Seven Figures podcast. You can find all the show notes at monicalouie.com slash 88. If you found this helpful, please leave a rating and review so that more people can find this podcast. It really helps the podcast get found by more people. So head over to Apple Podcasts, leave that review while you're listening, and I would so appreciate it. And if you're listening to this podcast on other podcast players and other apps, then leave a review there as well. And don't forget to subscribe because we've got a lot of amazing interviews and episodes coming your way. So many strategies and tips and incredibly inspiring stories to share with you in the coming weeks and months here in the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. And we've got some amazing solo episodes coming your way. I'll be diving even deeper in coming weeks into the world of Facebook and Instagram ads. Lots changing over there and I want to keep you updated. So 
Brand new episodes come out every single Thursday. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. And I will see you next week on the Flourish to Seven Figures podcast. That's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Take care, stay healthy, and let's flourish. Flourish.